Hello, and welcome to the newest episode in Dialogue Topics. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. This season, we're talking about the history of LDS scholarship on specific themes, exploring a topic in depth, and to consider how Dialogue has been a forum for these important issues since its founding. We'll also bring you up to date on these topics with our more recent issues to discuss some of the current trends. All of our topic pages are curated to bring you comprehensive collections of annotated scholarship and may be found at dialoguejournal.com slash topic pages, all one word, or navigate there from our homepage. You'll find amazing resources and research on tons of issues. This month, we're looking at the history of scholarship on the Book of Abraham. And this is an exciting time in this field. The Joseph Smith Papers Project has published the manuscripts in critical edition. There are also a couple of new books, one by Terrell Givens with Brian Hogland, The Pearl of Greatest Price, and Dan Vogel, Book of Abraham Apologetics. But the story that I want to tell here is the history of scholarship as seen through the pages of dialogue including the foundational role that the journal played from the very beginning when the Joseph Smith papyri were rediscovered in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City in 1967. This was a huge moment for dialogue as the hub for open discussion of this groundbreaking new find. Imagine if we found the gold plates and then had a chance to study them and translate them, and it turned out that they didn't say anything like what the Book of Mormon says. That's basically what happened with the Book of Abraham in the 1960s when the papyri were discovered. Since then, the question of the relationship of the Joseph Smith Book of Abraham to these ancient documents has been a source of intense debate and has been used as a wedge to mediate the authenticity of Joseph Smith's prophetic calling and translation abilities. Act 1. Discovery of the Joseph Smith Papyri Unlike the Book of Mormon, Book of Moses, and Doctrine and Covenants 7, with the Book of Abraham, we actually have a unique feature that we can compare Smith's translation with the source text for the first time. This is true not only for the text, but also for Smith's interpretation of the three images, facsimiles 1, 2, and 3. Joseph Smith had purchased the authentic Egyptian papyri along with four mummies in 1835. This was a period of traveling exhibits and Egyptomania in American culture. So while it is a little remarkable, the fact that ancient mummies and papyri ended up in frontier Ohio wasn't totally strange. Smith was interested in translating the documents and almost immediately declared them to be records of the patriarchs Abraham and Joseph. These original texts are the Joseph Smith papyri, and their discovery or rediscovery in 1966 sent shockwaves through the church and broader American culture. 
They'd been thought lost for over 100 years and were presumed destroyed in the Chicago fire in 1871. On November 27, 1967, the Metropolitan Museum of Art gave 11 Egyptian papyri fragments to the church that had once belonged to Joseph Smith and even had his handwriting on the accompanying paper. They'd been acquired by the Met in 1947 and sat in the basement of the museum for decades, unaware of their significance. The winter 1967 issue of Dialogue was the first to cover the topic and printed pictures of the documents with BYU studies just behind. This first issue also had exclusive interviews with Professor Aziz Atiyah of the University of Utah, the non-Mormon professor who had discovered them by accident while doing other research. He recognized them immediately given his familiarity with the LDS texts and belief, and then Hugh Nibley from BYU was consulted to authenticate them. You can imagine that there may have been a lot of initial hope in some quarters that these would vindicate Smith's prophetic translation abilities. Others may have expected them to reveal that he was a fraud. In 1912, Egyptologists had already challenged Smith's translations of the facsimiles. So scholars were aware of potential problems, but it had also been mostly ignored by Latter-day Saints. But the papyri changed all that. Right from the start, in the preliminary reports published in Dialogue, the documents were recognized as coming from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. They didn't have definite dates for them yet, but they knew that they were much later than the time period of Abraham. The summer 1968 issue followed up with the first translations of these documents based on the photos that the church had published in the Improvement Era, as well as another that had been discovered in the church historian's office, and with a roundtable on the subject. Dialogue editors commissioned Egyptologists John Wilson of the University of Chicago and Richard Park of Brown University to produce the translations and initial analysis. This issue also included analysis from two people who opposed the authenticity of the Book of Abraham, including anti-Mormon Gerald Tanner, as well as an essay by RLDS church historian Richard P. Howard and another by Hugh Nibley. It was the true spirit of dialogue to bring in lots of different perspectives on these new discoveries. So it was confirmed. The translations did not have anything to do with Abraham nor the facsimiles. They pointed out that the documents were spells from the Book of the Dead belonging to an Egyptian woman and the Book of Breathings belonging to an Egyptian man and dated them initially to 500 to 300 BCE, respectively, which was too early according to later analysis. Facsimile 1 is fragmentary, but it shows a jackal-headed Anubis over the dead body of Osiris, with Isis in the form of a bird hovering over Osiris's erect penis to be miraculously impregnated by his dead body. These texts would be buried with the dead as a guide to the afterlife. This is not a sacrificial scene at all, despite its representation as such in the explanation of the facsimile. Even if the surviving documents weren't used for the Book of Abraham, getting around the mistranslations of the facsimiles wasn't really possible. Just to clarify, because it can be hard to keep track, this initial assessment is important, but further study has shown that the 11 fragments are all funerary texts and actually make up three separate documents. Two are from the Book of the Dead for two different women, and the third is the Book of Breathings for a priest named Hor, H-O-R, sometimes called Horos, H-O-R-O-S, who we actually learn about from later discoveries 
as a Ptolemaic-era priest from Thebes, so he's a known historical figure. Now, all of this happened to coincide with another development in the 1960s. Joseph Smith and his close companions produced something called the Grammar and Alphabet of the Egyptian Language, which is actually multiple documents and contains the only copies of the facsimiles 2 and 3, which are now lost. Anyway, this project was their early attempt to develop a systematic translation of the papyri when they were copying down the Egyptian characters and assigning meanings to them. In 1966, just before the discovery of the papyri themselves, Gerald Tanner had published a bootlegged copy of the Egyptian grammar and alphabet. It's a strange document, but it shows that Smith didn't know the underlying languages independent from his translations of the Book of Abraham. Tanner's article in the 1968 Dialogue argued that Smith used the Book of Breathings in his translation of the Book of Abraham. Smith believed that the other scrolls, which we now know are the Book of the Dead, were a copy of the Book of Joseph, the ancient patriarch, the great-grandson of Abraham. But he never attempted a translation of that document that we know of. RLDS church historian Richard P. Howard saw the implications of all of this. Quote, One real possibility would be that the Book of Abraham is not a translation at all, in the sense of transferring ideas from the Egyptian to the English language. Nibley, however, identified this as phase one and said, quote, the investigation of the Book of Abraham has still far to go before we can start drawing significant conclusions. He offered a theory early on that there may be more manuscripts discovered and laid out a path forward for authenticating the Book of Abraham. It should proceed on the basis of the supposed ancient content of the book not on its relationship to the actual ancient documents. He proposes turning to the ancient legends of Abraham as comparisons for Smith's versions. The correspondence between the ignorant Smith's Abraham and other ancient legends about Abraham was more than a coincidence for Nibley. He also attempts to draw some rather superficial parallels between the actual documents and the teachings of Smith, the Book of Abraham, and other LDS beliefs. But he also acknowledges that it was possible that the book of Abraham was a revelation and not a translation at all. And thus, the terms of the debate were formed from the very first phase. The fall 1968 issue then offered another fuller translation by Egyptologist Klaus Baer from the University of Chicago of the funerary text, The Book of Breathings, or more accurately titled, The Breathing Permit of Hor, or was the deceased priest to whom the document belonged. This provided more precise dating for the documents, around 100 BCE, during the Ptolemaic period. For the first time, a full translation of the text, as well as of the facsimiles and the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, was produced. Beyond the Bluff, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black Lifelong member and a queer convert theologian, respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday.
Dialogue Podcast Network. Act 2. Interpretation. We've seen how, in many ways, the terms of the interpretation focused on historicity in this initial stage. Everyone agreed that the papyri didn't contain the Book of Abraham. So then the question was whether some or other lost portion might have contained it, whether Smith invented the text of the Book of Abraham himself, or whether he received it via revelation. But the content of the papyri and the Book of Abraham just didn't intersect, so the study went in different directions. Nibley developed his comparisons of the Book of Abraham to other apocryphal stories about Abraham in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic literature, sometimes from more than a thousand years apart, in a BYU Studies article, which expanded on his preliminary arguments in dialogue. In 1974, William E. Dibble wrote The Book of Abraham and Pythagorean Astronomy. This one looks at speculative cosmology traditions of Pythagoras and his school as a comparison for the sometimes strange cosmology and astrology in the Book of Abraham, Chapter 3. It's really just a note, but it indicates again the new directions and attention that these documents were bringing. In 1988 and 1989, two really important articles are published. The first was Anthony Hutchison, a Mormon midrash, LDS creation narratives reconsidered. This article looks at the Book of Moses and Book of Abraham and the creation narratives in them, which are expansions and retellings of Genesis 1 to 3. Hutchison then examines the ancient practices that did similar things with biblical literature from the insights of biblical studies. He is particularly interested in the well-known theory that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3 are actually written by different authors and represent two different creation stories. Besides the historical dating of these creation stories that are far later than the historical characters of Moses or Abraham, Hutchison notes that both the Book of Moses and Book of Abraham attempted to unify the two sources, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3, in new ways, resolving problems in the text and expanding on new possibilities. He compares this to the literary project of Midrash, a Jewish practice that retold biblical stories to expand their meaning. Hutchison continues the analysis with the temple creation accounts as well. Now, this is a classic article for providing a close comparison of the creation accounts, assessing their meaning, hypothesizing a genre that makes sense of Moses and Abraham, and more. If you want a deep dive as well as an example of LDS engagement with biblical studies, this is a crucial starting point. The second article in winter 1989 is Carl Sandburg, Knowing Brother Joseph Again, The Book of Abraham and Joseph Smith as Translator. This is really a foundational article too. Here, he discusses the modern era apocryphal stories about Abraham that are also found in the Book of Abraham, especially those of the Jewish Kabbalah, which depict Abraham as an astronomer persecuted by idolaters. But the key issue for Sandberg is the deeper question. What did Joseph mean when he called himself a translator? Translator was a title that Smith was given many times in his revelations collected in the Doctrine and Covenants, along with prophet, seer, and revelator. In many ways, the last 10 years, from 2010 till now, of LDS scholarship have been obsessed with this question, with several books and articles getting at it. 
But Sandberg is really kicking off this line of inquiry that would not only explain the book of Abraham, but tell us something about Joseph Smith by answering this simple question, what is translation? Normally, we define translation today as taking a document in one language and producing a document in another language through the use of a variety of techniques to render the meaning. But that isn't what Joseph Smith meant by translation. Basically, because in every case but one in the mid-1830s in that Hebrew class that he took, his translations didn't involve knowing the ancient language and usually didn't involve consulting ancient manuscripts at all. Further, in Smith's own time, the term translation took on a wider register of meaning, including practices of deciphering occult symbolism. The article looks at the use of the term translation in the Book of Mormon and other early Mormon sources to understand how its meaning doesn't correspond with the simple definition that we might have for it. Sandberg puts forward the catalyst theory, not only for the Book of Abraham, but for the Book of Mormon, that his interactions with material objects, especially stones, prompted divine revelations. He explains, quote, In the Joseph Smith experience with translation, the primary contact was not with the contents of a document, but with the mind of the seer, which determines what the document should say. The Book of Abraham wasn't translated with seer stones, but the Urim and Thummim, ancient seer stones in Smith's understanding, do play a role in Abraham's narrative. Sandberg then seeks to find the catalysts for the Book of Abraham. First were the new ideas about the priesthood that Smith was exploring in other revelations. Second, Smith's study of Hebrew in 1835 and 36 had a big impact and influenced especially chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Abraham, as did his encounter with other lore about Abraham during this time through his Hebrew teacher and other Jewish informants, as well as his reading of the ancient source Josephus, which describes Abraham as an astronomer and the first monotheist. But for Sandberg, the mental and spiritual processes of translation still demand an explanation, and his theory, though not always cited, is a foundational one, that translation doesn't mean what we think it means. In 1990, there's a brief response to Sandberg's article by Milan D. Smith Jr. That is the handwriting of Abraham. He says that Sandberg's theory of seership that sets aside the literal translation has some explanatory value, but it doesn't explain all the times that Smith was seeking and promising a literal translation. The Egyptian alphabet and grammar seeks to do precisely this, with the Egyptian character in one column and a translation in the next. And he puts a fine point on the challenges to a catalyst theory as not really matching up with how Smith often described his translation project. So I don't want to jump ahead too much here, but the tension between literal or correspondent translation and a revelatory translation has been a defining issue in the field. And the fall 2021 issue of Dialogue has an article by historian Michael McKay that is going to address this in a fascinating way. Stay tuned for when that comes out. This is Linda Hoffman Kimball of the Dialogue Foundation Board. This is Aaron Brown. I am Chris Kimball. 
My name is Dalen Amasimaku, board member of the Dialogue Foundation. For nearly two centuries, the Mormon tradition has produced a proud corpus of thought and culture. For the last 50 years, Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, has been the primary repository for the best of that tradition. As individuals have attempted to find new ways to be both Mormon and modern, Dialogue has provided the arena in which these conversations could take place. Dialogue's board of directors has made the decision to make all of the journal's content free the moment it is published. While we are fortunate to be in a position to make this transition, we are asking for your help so we can continue to do so for the next 50 years. Traditional readers can still subscribe to our quarterly print journal, but we also have a new donation model that allows readers to pledge a particular amount per month to support Dialogue's mission. Go to dialoguejournal.com forward slash subscribe to pass along the gift of Dialogue's deep, thoughtful analysis to a new generation of readers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Act 3. The Egyptologists are back. The initial discovery of the Joseph Smith papyri caught Latter-day Saints flat-footed. There was no one in the community who was a trained Egyptologist. They initially had to rely on outsiders to provide translations and assessments of the meaning of the documents, but it also inspired a number of Latter-day Saints to go into Egyptology and continues to do so today. In the spring of 1995, Stephen Thompson wrote Egyptology and the Book of Abraham, which reviews the literature and debates that had become increasingly mired in apologetics. This article focuses on the facsimiles, which had become a really key place where we can compare Smith's translations of an actual document with those of the Egyptologists who know the language and culture that produced them. In particular, Michael Rhodes' short essay in the 1992 Encyclopedia of Mormonism contained the remarkable and false claim that, quote, the prophet's explanations of each of the facsimiles accord with present understanding of Egyptian religious practice. Thompson's article challenges this claim. He walks through a correct dating of the manuscripts, first of all, to the Ptolemaic period or Greco-Roman era. Many of Nibley's comparisons were to Egyptian texts more than 1,200 years earlier, and the comparisons just didn't hold up. Thompson looks at the whole generation of Egyptological apologetics up to that point that attempted to vindicate Joseph Smith's readings and found them to be pretty weak or just wrong. This article also examines the translation of the Book of Abraham to see whether it represents something that could have come from Abraham or Abraham's time. Instead, he finds numerous anachronisms, such as the place names Chaldea, the word Pharaoh, Egyptus, and numerous other terms, historical claims, and ideas that definitively come from a later period. The Winter 2000 issue has a three-article series on the Book of Abraham. Robert Rittner is a famed Egyptologist, first at Yale, where he taught apologist John Gee before their epic rivalry, and later at Chicago. He's taken a strong interest in challenging apologetic arguments about this text. Rittner was the student of Klaus Baer, the first person to translate the papyri in the 1968 dialogue issue. Rittner's article, The Breathing Permit of Whore 34 Years Later, traces the history of various translations and notes the absence of any formal edition of the text with a full translation and transliteration. He then provides both in this article, an invaluable resource. The text, he explains, is a formal document or permit created by Isis and then copied by Tahot to assure that the deified or, H-O-R, 
regains the ability to breathe and function after death. With full mobility, access to offerings, and all other privileges of the immortal gods, the implications, basic symbolism, and intent of the text are certain. Rittner later published a critical edition of the papyri that has been considered highly reliable. Edward Ashman's short article in this same issue, Joseph Smith's Identification of Abraham and Papyrus JS1, The Breathing Permit of Hor, further connects Joseph Smith's Egyptian alphabet and grammar to the Book of Abraham, showing how Smith, or someone close to him, chose specific Egyptian characters and assigned them the name Abraham, but none of these mean Abraham. The final article in this three-part series is from Bradley Cook, The Book of Abraham and the Islamic Kisas on Albiya, Tales of the Prophets, Extant Literature. This picks up on arguments that other apologists had been making, that there were ancient parallels that Joseph Smith could not have known about between the Book of Abraham and other legends about Abraham. Cook's article adds Islamic legends to the discussion. Dating to the 800s and 900s CE and their earliest forms, these stories became quite popular. He dismisses the similarities of the Book of Abraham to ancient Jewish writings that Smith would have known, especially as it relates to Abraham's astronomical skill. Cook finds numerous parallels to the Islamic literature, which Smith could not have known. Finally, I want to turn to some recent articles that helped to settle another debate about the Book of Abraham. In winter 2010, Chris Smith and Andrew W. Cook wrote The Original Length of the Scroll of Hor, which put an end to the missing scroll hypothesis for the Book of Abraham. This had become popularized by John Gee. Cook and Smith used mathematical calculations to determine the spiral of the scroll and how long it might have been. There was not enough space on the scroll to contain a hieratic edition of the Book of Abraham. Gee pushed back with an alternative mathematical theory in a separate article somewhere else, but Andrew Cook demolishes this argument in the summer 2012 issue of Dialogue, Formulas and Facts, a response to John Gee. It's a hilarious pointing out of mathematical errors, showing that John Gee's alternative theory is exactly the same mathematical formula that Cook and Smith had, and it leads to exactly the same results on the length. So much for that. There are two final developments worth noting. In the mid-2010s, as part of a wave of transparency, the LDS Church released a Gospel Topics essay on translation and historicity of the Book of Abraham. It acknowledged that there were some ancient parallels, but said that its truthfulness doesn't depend on that. It also acknowledges that the translation of facsimile 1 does not match Egyptian and that nothing in the papyri corresponds to the Book of Abraham. It puts forward a theory that there might be missing elements to the scrolls that might have contained a Book of Abraham, but this theory, as we mentioned, isn't really supported anymore. At the same time, there's another argument that essentially translation means something more like revelation. Quote, Joseph's translation was not a literal rendering of the papyri as a conventional translation would be. Rather, the physical artifacts provided an occasion for meditation, reflection, and revelation. They catalyzed a process whereby God gave to Joseph Smith a revelation about the life of Abraham, even if that revelation did not directly correlate to the characters on the papyri. The catalyst theory gained official recognition as one possibility. The second development is that the Church History Department has now published critical editions of all of these documents as part of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, 
and can be accessed online. But strangely, John Gee has gone to war with the church history department, writing a series of misguided articles attacking the church's scholars. The LDS historians and Egyptologists who have looked at these issues most closely don't affirm his theories. It turns out that the Joseph Smith papers are highly reliable, and most of the disagreements are minor differences of interpretation rather than significant points. So if you're really interested in the manuscripts, you can go there. this episode. What's remarkable to me is how stable the debate has been for the past 50-plus years, focusing on historicity issues and attempting to provide some historical setting for the Book of Abraham, whether ancient or modern. Most of these major theories were laid out right from the beginning, though the missing scroll theory hasn't held up. Instead, we're left with the catalyst theory that either produced a revelation of an authentically ancient Book of Abraham or a modern text of genuine religious value, or not. But what is missing has been a serious theological analysis, which we're beginning to see in some quarters, yet much more needs to be done. Hopefully new scholarship will emerge, and hopefully in the pages of dialogue. Thank you for taking this journey with me and for taking the journey through Dialogue Journal and for all your support. If you want to subscribe or donate to Dialogue, you can do so at dialoguejournal.com slash subscribe. This episode was written by me with editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. Our social media managers are Adam McLean and Calvin Burke. The Dialogue Journal podcast is produced by the Dialogue Foundation registered 501c3 with support from Mary Thieves. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture, like The Foyer, where one or more distinguished guests will join Dr. Patrick Mason, Leonard Arrington Chair of Mormon Studies at Utah State University, for a thoughtful but informal conversation about Mormon history and culture. The Foyer is one of the newest members of the network. Check out all the shows at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network.